So I presented a show called The Remix on a station that doesn't exist anymore called XFM for 15 years. And so personally, I'm incredibly honored and excited that we got Tom Moulton, the guy that pretty much invented, I mean, not invented the remix, but definitely invented the 12-inch. And the relationship between remix and the 12-inch record, well, that is uh, that is like peaches and cream. That's that's like strawberries and cream, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm a massive disco fan, as you know, Eddie, and I'm out and about playing disco music regularly with Andy Smith as half of Reach Up Disco Wonderland. So, therefore, for me, really special to have the pioneer Tom Moulton on this particular episode of Trailblazers Electronic Pioneers, recorded back in February of 2021. This is a good one. Let's go. Welcome, dear friends, to another episode of Trailblazers. My name is Eddie Temple Morris, and by my side, as ever, XL Recordings and Positiva founder Nick Hawks. Together, each time we delve into the lives of some of dance music's brightest luminaries to talk about the cultural fires they started and to play some of the tunes that soundtracked their fascinating lives. Today's Trailblazer is a producer, mixer and remixer of extraordinary repute. In fact, he has made some of the greatest extended versions of some of music history's greatest songs, from Diana Ross to Grace Jones. But more than anything else, he's an inventor. And what he invented was the remix. The extended version even. Some would even say the 12-inch single as we know it. And as two lifetime worshippers of the 12-inch mix, we remain in awe of Tom Moulton. Tom, welcome to Trailblazers. True trailblazer that you are. How do I follow that intro? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Nick will uh, make it easy for you. Okay, all right. All right, well, look, pleasure to meet you, Tom. We're doing this over Zoom. You're in New York at the moment. And I just wanted to, to sort of, first of all, obviously, welcome welcome you. Thank you for, for giving us your time. What are you up to at the moment? How's New York? How's lockdown kind of zone treating you? How are you doing? Well, that doesn't bother me much because I stay home most of the time and work anyway. So that's nothing new for me. It's just another day in my life. You seem to be working prodigiously at the moment. Uh, tell me a bit about, about that. Uh, well, I've been trying to finish the Salso box because the BMG is going to put out a four CD a Salso box of, uh, you know, a, a lot of new mixes I've done on Salso that I've never done before. So that's another Philadelphia thing. So since Philadelphia seems to be uh, all a glitter right now. Are you working almost every day right now on remixes, re-edits, etc.? Uh, well, I don't do re-edits. I just do remixes or mixes. So, but yeah, absolutely. Okay. And do you have the same sort of interest, passion for 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 that right now, or is it, is it eb- does it ebb and flow? What, how would you describe that? Um, you know, it's funny. The passion never changes. I keep saying to myself, it gets bigger and better and the reason i say that because the more i i learn the more i want to experiment and go keep going beyond and i like that i mean you know i think i think when when you're constantly growing i think you you just open up your mind to a lot of new things and i like that Great. I'm, I'm pleased to hear that you still feel you're, there's stuff to learn. Oh, absolutely. If I get a multi-track I've never had before, I mean, I get all flustered. I really do. because Well, it's <laughs> exciting. I mean, you know, when you think of 
you know, all the time and energy that went into these things. And, uh, you know, I've experienced it enough times. It It's an honor to be able to put your hands on in your ears and your mind on these things. It really is. And are you working from original multi-tracks right now, primarily with this with this new work that you're that you're doing? Uh, with some, I actually have the multi-tracks true, but uh, a lot of them I get. Uh, you know, I ask for high quality digital transfers, which is fine with me, also. Right. Okay. Because you're you're turning your hand at the moment to various sort of artists and, and records that you haven't touched in in the past aren't you exactly and which which ones have you enjoyed working on you know in the recent phase of of work that we've become familiar with on Bandcamp? well uh i guess i would have to say something like the sandra richardson track i mean i was i was i was accused of mixing it originally which uh i was kind of surprised because there was an acetate floating on YouTube and somebody posted a picture and on it was scribbled, probably mixed by Tom Moulton. And when I heard it, I went out of my mind because I said, that's my kind of song, but I didn't mix it. And it took me a couple of years to find out where it was. And I found it and got my mitts on it and mixed it properly. Great. And there's, and there's some other absolute gems. The Donna Summer is something of a masterpiece, isn't it? Which, which one? Uh, love to love you, baby. Oh, uh, the nightmare! I call that. Um, oh, really? Why? Well, why it because I think it was. I think it was recorded as a demo, and the drum track were basically on one track, and including you know the entire drum kit. And what I had to do, I wanted the uh, to me the thread that held it all together was the hi hat. Yes, and. It kept disappearing. So what I had to do was copy it where it wasn't, there wasn't anything else going, and then laying it each on top of each one that was within the drum track so I could have it the same consistency through the whole song. (laughs) <laughs> and that and that it's time consuming and you know people say oh you're crazy to do that but then the end result is i have a hi hat going through the entire song and anybody else who tries to mix it won't do, won't have that unless they do that yeah that is that is hard work particularly when you've uh, you you've got 19 minutes of music tom you didn't take the easy the easy route no but but the results were you know were rewarding it's just that i couldn't do it all in one time because otherwise i could go crazy Sure. Wow. So, so look, this is a, a really interesting insight into how you're, you're working at the moment. I'm sure, Eddie, we'd, we'd like to, to hear a little bit more about the history, though, right? Well, I was just thinking before we wind the clock back that, Tom, you, it must have been fascinating for you to just see and be present for the, the recording and remixing and, and the process of, uh, you know, of what happens in a studio has changed so much. You've seen it go from, you know, from great to worse. From great, really, really. Is that well, no, <laughs> I know, no, because you know, people, you know, people today think of a recording as, oh, I can do everything. So you lay a drum track down, and then you lay a bass drum track, and then with me, everything is real. There's a rhythm section, and it's five or six guys or guys and women working together to create this. What I call the 
the soul of the song, the heartbeat, the thing that keeps it alive. And, and you can't, it's very difficult to create that out of one person because you have one person, you know, putting things on top of things where it's not five different people creating this thing like we did at Sigma. I mean, it's, it's, it's a totally different way of doing things. And I can't think like the modern person because I still think of the drums as, as a, here, the guitar here, the piano over here. I, you know, music's very visual to me. And when I don't have that, it, it, it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't, I don't get it. So do you like working in the old school way, keeping things in the analog domain, that kind of thing? Well, I'll always think analog. Every time I make an edit, I'm still, I'm still taking a razor blade, you know, making an edit. I can't help that. I mean, that, that, that'll never change. It's like having a nucleus. And once you get that nucleus just right, then you start adding the strings, the horns and the overdubs. And, and you're creating this, what I call a visual painting. And if you close your eyes, you can, with my mixes anyway, you can close your eyes and visualize where everything is because I make sure you can, that my stage is there and, you know, the strings are always in the back. I mean, you can visualize where everything is. <laughs> Wonderful. So you're a vibe man because, of course, you know, you, you talk about a, you, one person can't deal with these. You need five, these are five separate vibrations happening, you know, together. That's... But it's it's five to create one. Yeah. See, it's it's but it's a group of people making working as a unit to create this thing, and that's why I said it sounds alive, and that's why I want to make it sound alive. Well, that's wonderful to hear, and and you can and you can hear it in your work. So, should we should we go back to where things started for you, and let just let's just let's just get a some context to how you know your your musical journey started. Let's just go back to. When you were growing up, you know, where were you growing up? What was your childhood like? And was it musical? Were your parents musical? Well, my parents were both musical. My father was a guitar player. My mother was a piano player and an organist. They were kind of into the music of uh, the 40s because I was born in 1940. So they were, you know, into the 30s and 40s. So it was the big band sound. And they leaned more towards jazz at that time. And uh, I had a very bad childhood uh, when it came to music because I was forced to play a violin with my right hand and I'm a left-handed person. And I, and I was forced to write with my right hand and I, I, I just rebelled against everything because of that. Of course, because they say that, that you know, the left-handed person owes the devil a day's work and all of that stuff, of course. No, but it was, it, I, I'm telling you, I rebelled against everything because I, I couldn't understand. It was so difficult, you know, to play a violin. I'd rather play a violin like that, but I, I just, and so I, I just rebelled against music because of that. And why was it that they wanted you to, to because play that's the way Because that's the way it was. Left-handed people, it was wrong to be left-handed. Right, yeah, that's curious isn't it that's just bizarre it's you know thinking back on that now it's a really bizarre thing but I, i'll tell you what i'll tell you what the better answer was anytime i said why do i have to do this you won't say that when you get in the army <laughs> so what 
what is, what what is that what does that mean? I mean, I can't question something because I don't understand. Oh, it was. I mean, I I really. I mean, I rebelled against a lot. That's that's why I can't. I I can't read music. There's a mental block there because I just. I just have a resentment towards that part of it because of, you know, being forced to try to play right-handed. I'm actually amazed just to dive in that you that you cultivated an amazing career in music with such a negative experience at the front end. It might almost have been easier to say, fuck this, I'm going to do something else. <laughs> well, you got my words right. Uh, exactly. And, uh, but again, I... I did music on my terms and the way I wanted to do it. I think uh, I think the reason I went in the direction I did is because uh, I didn't want to do it like everybody else because everybody else was right-handed. You know what I'm saying? So it was that, well, I'll show them that left-handed people can do something, you know. So I never really analyzed it that much, but now that we're talking about it, 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 it explains a lot about my personality you know where uh well you know people would say uh well why are you using an organ now and i'd say uh well because i like it well organs are out now and i say great i have it all to myself then and i kind of <laughs> like that idea because i never like to copy i never like to copy anybody so if everybody's doing this i'll do that because i have it all to myself why should i worry about what somebody else does Great, excellent. I, I tell you what, Tom, can we play a piece of music? Can we hear a bit of music that, that had an impact on you when you were a kid growing up and having these sort of battles maybe with your with your folks? Well, I had a problem with Lottie Miss Claudie because that's the first time I spent my money on a record. And even the store clerk said, does your mama know you're buying that record? Because I went to the race section where race music was. <laughs> which which city was, was this, uh, Tom? A little town called, I have to do it the way we learned in school, Schenectady. <laughs> right. Oh, and, and where in America is that? Uh, Schenectady is right next to the capital of New York, uh, near, right near Albany. Yes. So we're like seven miles away from Albany. Okay. Okay, so so you were there, and you you went into a, a, a record store. This was the first record that you bought, and it was what it, the, the the racks were divided out. Were they into there was there was a, there was a race section? Well, you had yeah yeah because you had you had the regular music, and then you had a, a place rhythm records, race records, right? And that's what the what these records were called, race records. Well, yeah, and and so I I heard this song called Lottie Miss Claudie by Lloyd Price, and I just I said, man, what kind of music is that? He said, oh, you you're not supposed to listen to that kind of music. I said, yeah, but that kind of music does something to me. I don't know if you've ever heard of Lloyd Price or Lottie Miss Claudie. He was 16 years old when he wrote it and went in and recorded it. And it was on that great label called Specialty, which Little Richard was on and Larry Williams. Like what's like what was on the Beatles' first album, most of their songs, you know. Gotcha. Well, let's let's listen to it and uh imagine the the impact that it had on you and, and let's imagine you purchasing it in that record store and being told that this isn't really the sort of music that you're supposed to be listening to. On a seventy-eight, 
I might add. On a 70. Because there were no 45s then. Right, right. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, let's Im- imagine that. Okay, let's let's uh, let's stick a seventy-eight on, and uh, come straight back after that. Thank you for that first selection. That is that's fantastic, Tom. Uh, tell me what happens next. When do you start to discover music in a in more of a, um, a sense of maybe like seeing bands or, or or performers or going to dance halls or, or you know etc. Well, you got to remember something. You know, like I grew up uh, as as a teenager, where you know white kids listen to white music and. You know, black kids listen to black music. It just seems like things that I were told to do. And when I asked why, I never got an explanation that made any sense to me. They said, oh, you're not supposed to listen to that kind of music. And then when the Penguins Earth Angel came out, I started asking people, oh, I love that record. Well, so did everybody else. And then... um, but that was the first time that a white cover didn't beat out the original. I don't know if you're familiar with Earth Angel by the Penguins. And I, and I always had a problem when, I, when they say you're not supposed to listen to that kind of music. I said, well, how can you tell what kind of music it is when all you're doing is hearing them? You can't see them. How can you say it's wrong? Because how do you tell it's, it's, it's color? Isn't that amazing? And, and it's like... Well, like, no one ever asked them that. Well, I, I wanted to understand why I shouldn't listen to this kind of music because it was black. I said, how do you tell it's black? Who are you having this conversation with? Just people in general, adults. I just thought, I mean, I mean and, that, and that wasn't a good enough excuse to stop listening to it. And what was the, the dance hall environment like? What, what, you know, the public sort of group consumption of music. I'm trying to find out a little bit of your first experiences of hearing music surrounded by hundreds of other people. Well, you know, first of all, you got to remember something. I, I came in the complete opposite of a way of the way a person who does what I do now does. In other words, I started, I wanted to be around music. So I worked in a retail store then I became a promotion man, a salesman promotion man. And that's how my journey went. And um, I always liked the idea of turning people on to music. That's the main thing. And uh, I like what music does to you. I like what it does to me. And I like what it does to other people. And when other people send me notes and, and tell me you know, how they feel, 
and they say, oh, this song makes me feel like this or like that. And I say, yeah, I do understand because it does the same thing to me. And it's amazing how somebody will always find that that thing that made me click to that song. It's amazing. I, I don't know how they do it. And they're usually younger people. Who was doing that to you in the beginning? You mentioned uh, a neighbor and you love turning people on to music. Who was turning you on to music? Well, it was just that one time. Well, then when I, because he told me to listen to this uh, radio station, uh, which um, I don't know how, how they they do it in England, but here uh, radio stations, their area, their amount of coverage is protected. And usually stations will come on at six o'clock at night. So stations that uh, say have a, they're 50,000 watt, if they're not 24 hour 50,000 watt, they have to drop the signal back so these other stations can appear. And what happened is WKBW came out of Buffalo and there was a DJ called George Hound Dog Lorenz. And he used to play all these, well, I call them songs to move your soul, but they were usually R&B records. And it was just cool to listen to him because when you heard the way they played radio in Schenectady, trust me, was nothing like that kind of stuff. Was he a black guy playing black music or a, a white no, guy? No, he was a white guy who was black inside, just like me. Same thing. <laughs> I mean, it was just, no, I mean, he just really felt the music. And I mean, you know, let, let's face it, R&B is more expressive. It's more expressive when it comes to pain. Well, but I guess culturally, they, they have felt more pain. Yeah, but but then um, I guess it's uh, learning to expose your feelings and put it in your voice. And I don't think white singers really have that as much as black singers do. And you, so you you were working in the record store, um, and then that led to an opportunity to work as a promotions person. Did you say in a, in a record label? You got your first kind of industry gig, right? Well, what happened was um, myself and four other kids. We decided, hey, we got to get out of Schenectady. Let's go to California. I mean, uh, it was kind of a nutty thing to do. But I mean, I was 17 years old. I was the youngest and um, it was hard. I mean, I grew up kind of fast after that because that's like the first time I was, you know, not with my parents and my brothers and sisters. So it was kind of different. So right away, I got a, a job uh, with Seaberg, the jukebox people. And you know, I was picking up, I was going and picking up the 45s from distributors because we had a one stop. And then finally I started saying, well, you know, why don't we should buy this record and we should get this record? Well, why? Because I said, it's a great record and I think it'll go good in the R&B or in the R, you know, black locations or, you know, the teenage locations. You know, I think this kind of thing will will do well. And I could usually pick the hits. I was good at that. And so that's how I got going, involved in promote because I was constantly, you know, if I, if, uh, even as a promotion man, I worked for United Artists, and yet I go into a program director. I say, hey, look at, I know it's not my record, but you got to hear this 
na 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 hey hey i'm telling you right now it's going to be a number one record so i think you should play it well who well let me see it i said no it's not mine it, it's lenny pizzi's you know it's, it's on mercury but it's going to be a smash so I'm, I'm telling you right now and they'd always listen to me because i was always promoting somebody else's record and the whole reason i did it because i said hey look if you're the guy who's always known to play the hits. So when I really have a hit that's on my label, they'll play it. And it usually, and it worked. It really did. But I was always, I could never keep my mouth shut about a great record. And where were, where are we on the on your timeline here? I'm presuming that you got the job in the record store in the late 50s and you you got this job in the in the, the as we were turning into the the, dec- the decade was on the turn? Oh yes. Yeah. Then I got well see from there when when I worked I worked for Seaberg. And then this uh, a guy called, I can't even think of his real name, but everybody referred to him as Madman Muntz. And uh, he, he, he made a television, but he also was the one who created what they called the eight-track tape. And what they mean by eight-track, or uh, eight-track was... It's the cartridge, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and I remember, and I always was, I was always big on stereo i mean stereo is always my you know it just stereo sounded more alive to me and you know and, and i think any music should sound like it cost a million dollars to make in other words like it wasn't an accident it was well thought out well planned and i want everything in the record to sound like it's great and it's well recorded and like i said there's nothing wrong with that Absolutely nothing wrong with that. You've taken me right back. But that's why I love Sigma so much, because Sigma sounded like it was just above everybody else in the quality of the music, the style of the music, you know, strings and horns, the big orchestra. You know, I mean, that was like, you know, the primo studio. And that's why and that's why I loved it so much. And was there a point where you heard your first Sigma record and you had your mind blown? Well, and what was that? Well, it wasn't so much one record is um, I, I, I bought a record and it was by the Delphonics and I said, okay. And then I bought something else. Um, I bought actually bought a few Delphonics records because I was really sold on that group. Then a stylistics record. And I said, wait a minute. It's got that same guy's name on there. Tom Bell. And it's like when I tried to mix, when I tried to mix my first record, actually the first record I did was, I didn't know my butt from a hole in the ground, let's put it that way. (laughs) And they put it out two years later and it became a hit in the UK, which I still to this day have to laugh because I didn't know what I was doing with that record. I absolutely had no clue. I was just sitting there fooling around with the knobs and, panning this and doing that and we printed it but i but i never expected them to put it out and there was the car stairs it really hurts me girl i don't know if you i don't know if you know that song but it was a big northern soul song a big sort of ian levine record right in uh, blackpool oh no what he what he did was he re-recorded it he got the group and re-recorded the song because they couldn't find the original multi-track 
<laughs> would you be okay with us playing that record? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I love it now since so many other people love it. <laughs> Great. Well, let's let's remind some some old northern soul heads <laughs> of the lino and the talcum powder. <laughs> Okay, so so some initial success then, and then you you find your have you found your groove now? Would you say have you found what you want to be doing in life that you want to be in the studio? Yeah, well, I didn't. It didn't feel like that. It felt like it was a new experience, and I went, "Wow, I can, you know, do this and do that." And I wanted to learn more about it. And of course, I would run into. I wanted to do this. Well, you can't do that. And I go, why? Again. <laughs> As you did to the music teacher or whatever. Why? Right? Yeah, no, well, like, well, why Why can't I do that? Well, blah, 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 blah. I said, okay, can we create that illusion of that? And then, you know, you could smell the wood burning, you know? And say, I know we can't do that, but is there any way we can make people think that we did that but find a way to do it because no, we're not making a video. So can't people can't see what we're doing. And it's amazing how, you know, especially when in the, in the early days you work with an engineer, they would go into this area where no one ever asked them to do something like that. And they would come up with some creative way to create this illusion. I call it. Maybe you can tell us how that big BT Express do it till you're satisfied moment came about, Tom. What ha- what happened was um, the first record I did was when I when I went to uh, Scepter Records. May James introduced me to Mel Sharon, who was the uh, head of A and R, and um, I explained what I did with the with the record, with an instrumental and the vocal, and he said that's really good. Can you want to try that in the studio? And I go. Um, I guess. And then that's when I realized all these things were on different tracks, the instruments. So I explained what I wanted and then where to edit and do this and do that. And that was great. They loved it. So we do it till you're satisfied. They asked me if I wanted to go in and try to mix it. And that's what I did. And I made a long version of it. But Dream World was the first one I did, but that came out second. It didn't come out first. Do it till you're satisfied came out first.
And how many tracks are we talking about here? Because of course, in the sixties, people were recording on four, and then and are we, we were we on eight or sixteen or well, well, um, well, the first eight track was you know, um, oh god, you know, I can't remember the guy's name. Damn it, he he's, he was that Atlantic uh, engineer, a great one, I might add, but he got Ampex to build him an eight track machine. Ampex tape, I remember it well. <laughs> yeah. And, and, but an Ampex, Ampex machine. And the very first record that was recorded on an eight track was Splish Splash by Bobby Darren. And then right after that was What I Say by Ray Charles. So they experimented in the late 50s. Uh, Motown got one in 1966. And then the general public, let's say, or the, all these other studios got an eight track machine in 1968. So it was 1968 where we started seeing all the eight tracks. And of course, you were seeing not just the technology shift and improve, but you were seeing a real tectonic shift in music culture. And then disco, I'm guessing, must have hit you like a truck. Yeah, well, yeah, but you also got to remember, too, I was always, in other words, like I, I was a bit frustrated with, you know, like four track because when I discovered a tape, that had the first stage of a track. In other words, most of the time I would hear a mono where the, the drums, the piano, the guitar and bass would all be on one track. But then I found a tape that had the piano on one track, guitar on another, drums on another bass. And I went, oh my God. And so I thought, well, let me try to sync them up, which is what I did. And I, I really was taken taken back by that. And that was a song called This Can't Be True by Eddie Holman. So, I, I mean, I was just floored by the way it sounded. Great. Let's, let's listen to it now. Okay, Eddie Holman there. And now let's let's look at some more of these innovation moments. So uh, the first 12-inch single, let's talk about that one, um, Tom. How did that come about? It was an accident. And people don't like me to say that, but they ran out of 7-inch blanks. And so see what, hap- see what would happen. I, I had Studio A at Sigma Sound booked every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday for a year at a time. So Studio A at night was mine. For 12 years, I never slept Thursdays. I just worked through, and then I go to Media Sound, and that's where Jose was, who used to master all my records. And then sometimes, you know, after mastering, you know, uh, I'd be in a session 
with you know Tony Bonjovi or Miko Minardo. We'd be working on Gloria Gaynor or or just somebody or Al Downing. We'd be working on somebody, and that was usually on Fridays. But also before the session at night, whatever I worked on that week, I would always cut reference this because when I took them to the companies that I was working for, I wanted them to hear it like it was going to sound when it come out on the record. And the best way to do that is give them an acetate. Here, this is what the record's going to sound like. So I would always cut acetates. Well, they ran out of blanks. So he cut it in spec. So you had this big disc and this tiny little section, like a 45 on it. I said, that looks stupid. I, 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 I said, can you start it over here and like spread the grooves? He said, the only way we can spread the grooves is to raise the level. I said, I ah, go ahead. Well, you can't hurt anything, I guess. But as long as it looks full, you know, I, I just thought it looked silly, you know. And he said, okay, we'll just cut it at plus eight. That's the highest you can get it. I just went, whoa. <laughs> I couldn't believe the sound. And I went, well, that's great. I mean, I'll have, I'll beat everybody on the sound. No one else will have those dynamics that I got. And this is a disco record. Yes. And it was an accident. It was purely an accident. <laughs> well, some of the best things are. Apparently, Guinness was an accident. So you're in fine company. So was penicillin, too. So, oh, yeah, there you go. That's right. That's right. So that was 1974. Another first happened in 1975. You mentioned Gloria Gaynor previously. So do you want to do you want to tell us about that that kind of first mi- kind of mega mix type thing? I suppose, for want of a better phrase. Okay, uh, Tony Bon Jovi and Miko Minardo did the record, and they had done Al Downing, Don Downing, and I ended up remixing those records and. They asked me to get involved with it. So I listened to it and I had this idea like, why don't we kind of link all the songs together? They didn't really get what I was talking about. I said, you know, in other words, um, this would be great for a DJ because he'd be able to, you know, go have a smoke or go eat a sandwich or go to the bathroom because it'd be like 19 minutes. <laughs> Every DJ needs a piss record. <laughs> yeah, but 19 minutes, you could also do a lot of other things. So anyway. <laughs> the mind boggles. It was the 70s, Tom. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. But remember, I was church folk, but I was never into any of those weird things. So um, Okay. Anyway. Uh, I'll believe you. No, I'm. Tr- that's true. Anyway. Uh, well, first of all, you got to remember something, too. When you're in the music business, shorter is better. Shorter will get you more airplay. Of course, they are obsessed. You know, they, when you got when you got three minutes till the top of the hour news, you got to give them that record that's only two fifty. That'll fit right in, you know. And that's why people always want those real short records. And so somebody said to me, you know, you come into the business and you do just the complete opposite, make everything long. That doesn't make any sense. And I said, no, but it'll make dollars. <laughs> so that's all I said. <laughs> and of course, it'll make people happy in clubs. Oh, and yes, yes. And on the dance And floor. of course, no one, no one is going to spend $3.98, $4.98 for just one song. It's never going to happen. I said, that's fine. 
And then Ken Carey called me and says, you know, I, I, I'm i going to try to put out a record. I'm going to try making 10% commercially available. And man, that thing sold like hell. It, re- it was just unbelievable what that record did. I guess, to be honest, you're starting to find here that, that you know, you, the work that you were doing, that's, you've, you've succinctly ex- explained, yeah, basically the first kind of mega mix or DJ mix type thing that, that became commercially available. Instead of just those short rate edit things, you're lengthening records, you're giving records more breathing space, you are indeed making them more for the dance floor. Tell me a bit about Gamble and Huff and uh, the sound of Philly what it was like to, to, to be in that studio environment working with those guys? Well, I didn't work with those guys right away. I was asked to uh, mix the first, first song I ever did at Sigma was a song recorded there called I Just Can't Say Goodbye by the Philly Devotions. When they asked me if I was going to mix it at Media Sound, I said, no, I'd like, to, I'd like to go down to that studio because I really like that sound they have. Amazing sound. Oh, <laughs> believe me. So... I went down there and and I really felt like uh, I mean it was I mean I didn't know what to think. Anyway, they said, "Okay, the studio's upstairs. They're expecting you." I go into the studio and I didn't know any of the people, but there was Joe Tarsha, Harry Chippis, the studio manager, and two of the engineers and two of the assistants. The first thing I hear is, "So you're from New York?" And all I did was talking to me. You know, I didn't know what I didn't know what to say. I mean, so you're from New York? And I thought, uh-oh, this is not gonna go well. <laughs> and you know, it's like this guy comes down from the big city to where the hicks are, you know. So anyway, I said, okay. They had the song set up and everything. And I said, is it all right if I hit the play button? Oh, absolutely. Okay, I hit play. And I'm listening. And then I stop and I said, okay, you hear this sound? Yes. That's not exactly what I'm I want to do. It's not the sound I'm going for. So I sold sold the kick drum. I said, is it all right to fool with this? You know. So I tried to get I wanted to take some of the low low end off the kick and put more of the top and the upper mid-range on it. He said, Well, here, let you know, so and then the the engineer that was there was Pete Humphreys, and he said he said here that maybe I can help you get it right, and I and I explained no 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 a little more a little bit okay that's it then the same thing with the bass, and then I said now now play that and they they looked at me like you know well that that really doesn't sound I said I know it doesn't sound the way you're used to hearing it, but you'll be able to cut that on a record without taking up all the room. And they kind of like, okay. But then when I became successful with that, they all said, well, I guess it's a good idea. You know, people are doing it. And then after that, I mean, I had everybody and their mother asking me to mix their record. So let's pick a track that that came out on on that label that you worked on that we should have a listen to uh, now, Tom, if you would. All right, what about the first record I did for Gamble? And this record is? Do It Any Way You Want It by People's Choice. Great, let's hear it right now.
1977, the debut Grace Jones album comes out. It's called Portfolio. You'd met Grace Jones presumably, I think, some years before that. Tom, can you tell us about meeting Grace Jones for the first time and your work with Grace on her debut album? All right. Cy and Eileen Berlin managed Grace Jones. They were big fans of what I did musically. And um, even as when I used to have a billboard column, they would always write notes at, and send them to Billboard about how they loved this record I did or that. And they'd always, you know, you know, and I, I became very friendly with them. Then they got Grace Jones and they said, Tom, we want you to produce her. And I went, I, I really, I, I really don't want to get into that. You know, it's too much, it's too much work for just for the amount of credit you get. I mean, it's, it's a lot of work. The reason I say that, because I'd watch Norman Harris or Bobby Eli, they would be working there in the daytime. And of course, I, I'd arrive at seven and a lot of times they'd still be there. So what are you doing? Oh, man, we spent all day on the vocals or, man, we're having a hard time doing this song. And, you know, and I'm saying all that work, you know, for one song, I said, I don't want to get into that. I don't want to have these problems. But anyway, they talked to me into doing Grace Jones. And it was a song that I worked on with uh, Duke Williams. And it was with another singer called the and Rose. And the girl would never sign the contract. So I didn't know what to do. And then Grace, after, after the success of I Need a Man, Isla wanted to buy her contract. And she wanted to do and Rose. And I said, absolutely not. I'm not going to record that song. And uh, why? I said, I just had a bad experience with it. I just don't want to do it. Well, I want to do it like this record. I went, oh, well, okay. If you want to do it like this record, I'll be happy. I will do it. And then when I heard it, it was Teresa's version. I said, how, how, did, you, how, how did you get this? Oh, it's such sunshine sound. Well, I was really pissed at that and i and i only gave that to one person because he loved the song so much and that was a dj called tom savaris and i said tom uh, you, you gave the record out how, how, how could you do that i didn't give it to anybody i said what'd you do i gave you a tape yeah but i don't have my tape machine at home and said so what i did was i took the tape down to sunshine sound and had him cut me a, an acetate I said, don't you know, once you cut an acetate there, they keep that on file. So if someone comes in and wants it, they can just bang out another acetate. Well, I didn't know that. Well, that, that a lot of people were buying that acetate, and I was really mad because she wouldn't sign the contract. She just would not. She did not want to become a disco artist. So Grace, so Grace said, said, can you cut the track like this? I said, I can make the track sound exactly like that. She said, well, when can we do it? I said, how does tomorrow sound? She says, really? I said, yeah. And she said, well, what about the track? I said, it's my fucking track. Excuse me. Oh, <laughs> no, but I was so pissed. That said, I, I mean, she wouldn't sign the contract. So it was like all that time was a waste of time. You know, I mean, that, that's why I was so angry over it. But it led to a, an amazing moment uh, in, in musical history with Grace Jones. I know. I know. It absolutely did. I mean, I was shocked. 
that that ended up being so big as it was, and especially in France, my God. All right, well, let's give a, a quick listen to La Vie en Rose, uh, and after that, let, I'm just going to—I want to ask you a few more questions about about uh, Miss Grace Jones. So when you met Grace Jones, did you think this is this is somebody who's going to be a, a star? Let me put it to you this way. When I met her, like the whole thing with I need a man, I said, Grace, with I need a man, I said, if we do this, it would be a big gay record if I can pull it off. And she looked at me and said, whatever it takes. And I went, whoa. I never had anybody say that like that whatever it takes and she meant it so what happened is like jimmy stewart was the dj then they liked the track they didn't know what it was so then the night that she was going to do it she did it live there so the mic was set up so jimmy was playing i need a man and all of a sudden the spotlight goes on and then when i'm feeling lonely you know she starts singing i need a man and then after that was all over uh, all the people there yelling and screaming. And she goes, I don't know about you, honey, but I need a fucking man. She's <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Get me out of here. No, no, but it was so funny. I mean, oh, God. She, I mean, balls that girl had. <laughs> they loved her. They absolutely loved her. And uh, which club was this? 12 West. 12 West, because we haven't really talked about clubs in New York in that era at all. Were you in and around the, the clubs? Obviously, you didn't come from a DJ background, but were you in and around the, the, the club scene much as disco exploded? No. Which is perhaps a surprise to many. I know it's going to sound, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to sound, but I really didn't care what anybody else was doing. I only cared about what I was doing. And if as long as I made something sound exciting and the performance was good and it had a good break, then I was happy. So let me get this straight. Even though you're pouring your soul and all of your energy into making these records to rock the dance floor, you weren't actually in the clubs that much seeing these records doing... No, and the, know, reason, kind of- the reason for that is because those subwoofers I mean, they'd hurt my ears. They were so loud. And your ears are your living. Yeah, well, no, but I would actually get a headache from it. And I said, my God. I, and then, then afterwards, I had, mm, you hear that high-pitched noise in your ear. Forget <laughs> it. I said, I can't deal with that. 
was it upsetting for you because you spent all that time taking the taking the sub frequencies out? Exactly. No, no, but it would hurt like hell. No, but it really was, you know, a problem like that. If I can pick up off that, and you talk about taking a record to another a record to another stratosphere, I feel as though it's opportune is the wrong word. I feel as though it's appropriate and timely that we uh, that the week that we lost one of the Supremes that we talk about the astonishing remix that you did of Ain't No Mountain High Enough. When did that happen? Was that a, was that a, a more recent revisit, or is that something that you did right back in the day? And can you talk us through that? My complaint about the song is if you know the original, there's no rhythm going through the verses. And I know, I, but it sounds, if, if you know... How long it took me to do that? It took me months and months to do that. I mean, the BBC contacted me the other day and, and asked and asked me for a WAV file of it so they could play it. And they played the whole damn thing in the morning. And I heard it. <laughs> oh, but, no, well, yeah, and I know. And I got a lot of band camp things from that, too. My God. But what they did was, um, and the producer of the show said, uh, he said, I'm surprised you play a song that's over 10 minutes long. He says, well, when it's really good, we can play it. And I thought, oh, I, I guess this is where I say thank you. He <laughs> said, and I said, well, thank you. He said, especially when it got to that middle part. He said, it sent shivers down my spine. Exactly what he said to me. And I went, well, <laughs> it was, took more than I was ready to kill myself after doing that because it was so hard to do. And it sounds so simple and so natural. Yeah, it was worth all the effort, Tom. Oh, no, I listen, I agree. Believe me, when it comes out like that, it's worth it. But it sounds like it's so easy, like it just happened that way. And, yeah, I think yeah. that, and that's the most difficult thing to do, make it sound like it, it, it was so simple to do. Yeah, well, worth the effort. Sublime, a sublime piece of work. I mean, no, I, I believe me, I love it very much. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank well, you, thank uh, you for telling me that. I, I mean that. <laughs> that's wonderful. Well, let's uh, let's play it now because it really is astonishing. So um, we haven't yet mentioned Sal Soul. Tom, tell us about how you got involved with Sal Soul and a little bit of a flavour of the label that uh, has done such incredible work. Well, I always refer to Sal Soul as downstairs. That's Studio B. And that's where Vince Montana usually worked, in Studio B. And I was upstairs. Well, one day, Ken Carey came up. I didn't know him. Anyway, um, he said, well, you know, why don't you do something for us? 
And uh, I said, I like that group, the um, Double Exposure. He said, yeah, we, uh, we're going to come out with a new record soon. He said, maybe like a mix that. I said, well, let me hear it. And when I heard My Love is Free, I went crazy over it. I said, let me mix that. That turned out to be one of their bigger records on Salso. I mean, to this day, I mean, that thing gets so many hits, plays. It's unbelievable how that, the longevity of that song. But it's a great record. It really is. Yeah, no, I, I love that record. So, um, so, yeah, let's give that a spin. And then we'll talk some more about Salso. Double exposure, and so um, you're you're now working pretty closely with Salsol. It seems like there's a, a very consistent flow then of of, of work with with Salsol. What kind of arrangement underpinned the the workflow? Well, I started to work for them uh, only. I mean, I was I seemed like I was doing everybody's record, and this was a way of like kind of calming down a little bit I, I was i think i was trying to mix uh trying to make up for all the years that i didn't know what i wanted to do you know because i i uh you know i was always envious of, of kids when i was little because you know they say i want to be a fireman or i want a policeman what do you want to be i don't know <laughs> i never knew what i wanted to be and even in my thir- even when I got to be my 30s, I didn't know what I want. I honestly didn't know what I wanted to be. But when I started mixing, I knew I found it, my niche. And I said, I absolutely love it. It brings out this passion in me. And I, I, and I've never lost it. Still has it. Absolutely. And, and how long did your very close relationship with Sal Soul last? Because, I mean, I'm thinking that there were, there were some big records now into the 80s, right, in a life. And, you know, it's probably about 82-ish, isn't it? Yeah, but I left before that. What happened is I signed a, uh, my attorney then said, oh, you know, you've worked long enough in your life and, you know, you, you don't have to work so hard. So maybe we can... I'm talking to Casablanca and we'll do a deal with Casablanca. I mean, the money was great. Everything was great. I could keep two outside artists. So I kept the tramps and I kept uh, Grace Jones. Then I had, then I was to produce three albums a year. And then I, then I didn't have to do anything else. By March, I had all three albums done. And I said, I have to stop working. I said, I, I don't want to stop. I, I was going crazy. And uh, then Neil died. 
Neil Bogart. And when Neil died, um, he owned 49% of, uh, I'm trying to remember if he owned 51 or, no, I think he owned 59, 51% and Polydor owned 49. So when he died, that all went to, uh, you know, but I mean, his has got the value of the company at that time for that percentage. But anyway, they bought, uh, I guess, his wife out. And so they completely own Casablanca. So they said, uh, they said we have uh, a certain amount for settlement, and we have a thousand times that for litigation. So I went to court because they had me creatively, and I won my case, but I lost in a sense because um, I never wanted to to do this again. I was so bitter towards. I said, you, you know, I signed a contract in good faith and you, you turn around and say, it doesn't mean anything. Said, how can you do How can you do that? So basically, yeah, you had this phase and then it was the, the, the court case, was it, that kind of made you step back from music? No, is, I quit. Is, is that f- I quit. You quit? I quit. I never wanted anything to do with it again. And for how long? To 92. Right. So we're talking how many years then? Let's think that's, were you out of the game for like 12 years, perhaps? The last thing I did, for the last record I did for Salsa was Love Sensation. Right. That was the last one for Salsa. That was the last one, period, for 10, for 10, 12 years. Wow. It must, must have been so strange to go from such an intense amount of work. No, because I realized, you know, the business part was important, but if they're going to just say, well, we don't have to honor the contract anymore. So what are you supposed to do? Well, I can speak firsthand, Tom, about the impact that your work has with uh, with younger audiences because myself my, and my friend Andy Smith run a, a club brand called Reach Up Disco Wonderland and we have a sort of warehouse party residency in South London. We played festivals and done all kinds of stuff and so often we're reaching for, for records that you've had an involvement in and we look out on the dance floor and we see it packed with or pre-lockdown era of course we'd look out on the dance floor and see it packed with people who are in their 20s who of course you know born so far after the the records were made but having a great time and of course that's one of the most amazing things about music and one of the the beautiful things about music which has made me want to work in it for the last three decades and I hope to be actively involved when I'm your age, Tom, to be honest. What advice would you give to young artists, young producers who who want to make a, a similar kind of stamp on the industry to the impact that you've had? All right. This is what I tell everybody. You know, you don't play an idea. You don't do something until you feel your idea is developed where you say, that's the way I want it to be. I said, you don't play it beforehand. You wait until you're happy with it, no matter how crazy it is, because all I got when I started out was, no, 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 no. Why would you want to make something longer? It's shorter is better. I mean, I did the complete opposite. Everybody thought I was nuts, but I believed in it. And so 
fine. So if you have an idea, don't let somebody beat you down. But what you got to do is wait till you develop the idea where you say, yeah, that's really something. Then you play it. Because otherwise, you know, the first impression is the lasting impression. And, and I speak from experience. Like I played somebody once uh, something. And I said, well, look, it's only a rough mix. And I said, I will never, I'll, I, I, I never, I never want to justify why I'm playing something. I don't want to say, oh, if I had more time, it'd sound better. Or, or we ran out of money, so we couldn't use real strings. We had to use keyboard. It's just bullshit lines. And I will never do that. I say, here is my record. Here it is. Here, here is my latest song. Either you like it or you don't. And I mean, because that's the best I can do. And that's all. And, 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 I, and I always make sure it's the best I can do. Because I look at my latest mixes. I'm Tom Moulton. Here's my calling card. And that's exactly my calling card, my latest song. Yeah, yeah. You've been very generous with your, your time, and we, we thank you for that. I got one. You just mentioned the word stealing. Before we do the, the final sort of tune, can I just ask you what you think about sampling? Well, it's like I say about anything. You know, the hardest thing when you produce a record is a starting point. You need something to build on. And without that foundation, without that starting point, you, you have nothing to build on. So I'm saying to these samplers, look at, if you hear this little blah, 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 or whatever, and that makes your creative juices go, I say go for it. But then what I would say to you is, hey, instead of paying all this money because I sampled this, why don't I try to come up with my own idea? I hope they eventually try that. You know, whatever it takes to get you into it, once you're into it, then you can move around in it. But it's getting that it's getting that one thing. I got lucky. The first one went to number one. So, like I said, the only place in there is down. All right. Eddie, would you mind doing us the honour of uh, presenting a final question to uh, to Tom? Uh, it would be an absolute delight. And now, so Tom, here's the thing. You know, you've had the longest career of any of, of our guests. So, actually, I'm going to, for the first time, and I hope this is all right with you, Nick, I'm going to, because I feel as though you deserve this, and please take this as, as the compliment that it's meant as we have asked the same question or rather i've asked the same question well we have of every single guest that we've had in three seasons of this and i'm going to ask you a different question to everyone else okay it's a similar thing but I, what i'm gonna and i've just thought of this i just i just because i would really like to know this so picture a, a scenario in the future where the human race and this is what we're heading towards have fucked this planet so badly that we are extinct so there are no more humans. And one day in the future, some aliens turn up and they land here and they go, wow, this place is nice. This is great. Why isn't there anybody here? And then one of them finds a piece of vinyl, a record that has lasted all that time, because of course it will do. What is the record that you would want the human race to be remembered by? Probably love is the message. Love is the message. Well, because that's, they might want to know what love meant. And I think love is, love is very important for a, a human's longevity and a human survival. It really is. You don't get far with hate because that really ruins you, I think. But, uh, you know, like I, like I say, I look outside my window and 
it's like the merry-go-round. I look out each day and I say, gee, I wonder how fast it's moving today. Because I have my rose-colored glasses that I see the world through. And I see it through music, so my life is surrounded by beauty. So how can I lose? I can't lose. Well, Tom, thank you so much for your for your time. I think we should put an open end on this, actually, and to say this is part one. Yes, and stay tuned for part two, folks. When you're a, when you're a hundred, Tom, because I think you're going to. No, miss- I, well, we do it in te- <laughs> we do it in ten year lots. All right, done, done. It's a ninety. Deal. I'll see you in ninety. We'll see you exactly. Well, if we're still alive. Yeah. Tom, I just wanted to say thank you so much, man, for giving us your time today and uh, and your thoughts and your wisdom. We appreciate it. Well, I had a lot of fun, and it's always fun talking about music. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. And we'll speak again, I hope. Okay. It's a true honour for me and Nick to talk to such wonderful music pioneers. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And we'd really appreciate it if you drop a review. It really helps us. It helps our sponsor. It makes this whole thing sustainable. 